Romans chapter 8, we started in this book back in January and now we're up to chapter 8 and we've just kind of been going basically paragraph by paragraph until two weeks ago we hit a section uh, that we've been labeling life in the spirit and as you see this is part 3 uh, of one message, one ongoing message from verses 9 of chapter 8 through verse 18. Here's what we're doing, I'm going to put you right back in it. There are seven things at least that the Holy Spirit does for a Christian. So if you're sitting there right now and you honestly in your heart say, I'm a Christian. I want you to check yourself. We've looked at five things thus far. We're going to look at the last two in this passage today. So no one should walk out of here thinking they're a Christian today if they don't have these things in their life. This is, this is for everybody. This isn't for the elite Christians. All right? And if someone is not a Christian, frankly, it should be very, very clear what the Bible says, the Holy Spirit does for people, that's not happening in my life, I'm not a Christian, and so you should not walk out of here cloudy and confused, you should know where you stand. And we would love for you to come to Christ before this service is over. I'm not going to reread all of verses 9 through 18, so I want to recap five things. Check yourself. You'll see some of them in the passage in a minute. You ready? According to verse number 9, when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you immediately. Holy Spirit of God indwells you. Do you sense that there's something in you way bigger than yourself? God is in you. A Christian should say, yes, I sense that. Number two, the Holy Spirit of God gives you life. Literally, you were born into this world with a body that is alive, a soul that is awake and aware, but a spirit that was dead. And when the Holy Spirit came into your life, He made you come alive, and all of a sudden now you have spiritual life, but it's not just now. Paul goes out of his way in verses 10 and 11 to tell us the same Holy Spirit that gave you spiritual life now will see to it that you will have physical life through eternity. The same body that is sitting, I'm looking at your body, if you're a Christian, you're going to get that same body but glorified throughout eternity. It will be raised to life. And if you're sitting there saying, I don't really want this one back. I'm kind of tired of this. I want a better version. Oh, you're going to get a better version. Okay? That thing there is corrupt, detestable, decaying seed. It'll be planted, and at the right time, the Lord will raise it back to life, and the Holy Spirit will see to it. The third thing, and this, I think, came out of uh, verses... Oh, 12 and 13 that the Holy Spirit does is he sanctifies us. Remember that word. That's a Bible word. That's where he makes us more and more like Christ. So the Holy Spirit, he indwells. He gives me life now and later. He starts sanctifying me, making me more and more like Christ. What else does he do? Verse 14, he leads us. He leads us by convicting. He leads us by teaching us the scripture. He leads us by prompting. Hey, do this. Don't do that. If you're a Christian, you should say, I can sense the leading. That kind of ties back to verse 9. Absolutely. Ties back to verse 9. And then the fifth thing we've looked at is this one. It was out, it was tying verse 14 and 15 together. The Holy Spirit not only leads it, but, but He seals our adoption as children of God, particularly this way. The Holy Spirit tells me, this is my story, we're just saying, blessed assurance. The Holy Spirit tells me, I am able. So if you're a Christian, has this ever happened? It may not feel right. It may not feel natural. But Jeff, you really can call God the Father your Father. Abba, Papa, Father. I can call Him that. If you're a Christian, you have that ability. The Holy Spirit gives you that right. Now would you back up? We're going to read from verse 14 to 18 today. And we're going to see the next two things. We back up to verse 14 because it does set that setting of children because the next two things have to do with that. Here's the Bible. If you believe the Bible, then you need to take this to heart. All for all, not some, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Implying if you are not led by the Spirit of God, then you're not the sons, the children of God. Sons of God there means sons and daughters. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, the idea of bondage to fall back into fear. That's the old life, fearful of death and and fearful of being separated from God and bondage and slavery to sin. That's not what you've fallen back into. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit. 
You've received the Spirit. What Spirit? The Spirit of adoption as sons. As sons, you've received the Spirit. And in this verse, he's called the Spirit of adoption. Watch, what does he do for us in this? Talked about it last week. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's what he does for us. Verse 16 through 18 is our text today. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That'll be our sixth thing in a moment. I hope that's already like, hey, I know what that means. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And verse 17, and if children, the idea is not if as in, oh, I hope so, maybe. It's the idea of because and since, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, which means fellow heirs with Christ. You say, I love that part. Keep reading. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's the Bible. And in verse 18, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who's inspiring him to write the words of God, for I consider, I've reached a conclusion, I know this as a fact, that the sufferings, he just talked about in verse 17, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Seven things the Spirit does. I just gave you five. Number six, if you want to write it down. The Spirit assures us. The Spirit assures us. The only thing I can think of that's better in this world than being a child of God is to be a child of God, literally an adopted child of God, and know I'm a child of God and have no doubt about it. I can go ahead and live this life knowing I'm a child of God. Last week we talked a good bit about adoption. Y'all remember that? So here, here's a Roman dad, and he wants to adopt this boy. But that boy is under another natural father's patria potestas. He's under that father's ultimate, complete power. He has complete power. But he wants to adopt, and that man is ready to get rid of this son. So he wants him. He doesn't want him anymore, and here's what happens. They have a ceremony, and it's done in a courtroom. And they have this thing called mancipatio, which frees the boy from that father's complete control, absolute power, and moves him over into a state that he can now have vindicatio, the second part of that ceremony, in which the new father adopts him and brings him under his absolute power. Now, here's the key. That whole ceremony is done in a courtroom and it's witnessed by seven witnesses under Roman law. It would be recorded, that man gave up his paternal rights, he is now free, that boy belongs to no one, but immediately this man brings this boy under his his power and everything about this dad is now his. It's a completely new family. Everything about the old life is done away. And seven people witness this just in case when the father dies, if down the road someone wants to question and say, now that boy's not in the inheritance. He has no rights in the family. One or several or all of those witnesses come back together and say, uh-uh, uh-uh. Read the books. It's in the books. It's legal. It's binding. That's a legitimate. That was his father. He is his son. We were there. We witnessed it. And the judge says, I don't know. You're his natural son. I don't know if you get anything, but I know that boy gets that man's inheritance. And the witnesses are there to testify to that. So what does that have to do with us? Write it down. The Holy Spirit is the witness that our adoption is into the family of God, and it is legal, it is binding, it's legitimate, it is real. And if you're sitting here this morning and say, so let me get this straight, the Holy Spirit reminds the Father that He adopted us. No, God's not forgetful. God's the one who did the adopting. He knows what He did. He's the one who set the whole thing up in eternity past. You say, then who's the Holy Spirit witness to? Look at verse 16. That's a good question. So let the Bible answer it. Verse 16 The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we. So the Holy Spirit says, you're a child of God. He tells me, his witness is to me. This is talking not only, so verse 14, 15 is about this transaction of adoption. Verse 16 is about my awareness of the transaction. It's about the reality, being aware of the reality. Watch this, I've, I've not adopted, some of you have adopted. 
And I know one family in our church just finished adoption of five children. I know of another family in our church is trying to get an adoption of a little baby. And some of you yourselves, you have been adopted. Let me tell you something. Those of you who have been through that, you know what I'm about to say is true. When a parent adopts someone, they want that child come into the house. Come on into the house. Make yourself at home. Know that you belong. Assume your role. This is your new family. This is your address. That's your room. There's the refrigerator. That's where the cu- I'm going to do this the first time. Okay, I'm going to do it the first time. Here's the cups. All right, here's the plates. Over here's the food. You want something out of that? Now the second, now on, get in there and get it, just like everybody else. Come in and be, don't go around all sheepish. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm adopted. No, 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 we didn't do that. We didn't bring you in to come in all head down and not making eye contact and just sneaking around. We, we brought you in because we love you. You're chosen and loved. We want you to assume your role, be part of the family. That's your crazy uncle over there. That, that's your grandma. She's always going she's, she's to start kissing on you just like she does. You're in this family, like it or not. You might as well get used to it. Come on in. You know what the Bible's telling us today, Christian? God's done everything he can. He wants you to know that you belong to the family of God. He doesn't want you wandering. You say, all right, Jeff. How will I know I'm a Christian? If the Spirit witnesses. Well, notice, first of all, again, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. Guys, it's spiritual. There's no physical phenomenon. I was talking with someone just the other day. There is nothing that physically happens to a person where I look at, like today, I cannot tell by looking at you, oh, those are saved, those are not. If we could, I would probably group you, not to be mean, but I would probably group you into groups. And certain parts of this message, I would target toward a saved group, and other parts I would make eye contact and direct that part toward those that are not yet because there's a physical phenomenon. There's none of that. This is a spiritual thing. You say, what happens? The Holy Spirit tells my spirit that I really am the child of God. Now, honestly, we could put a dozen things and we could be here till 1 o'clock instead of 12.05 like normal. Uh, can we get four? Look at Galatians chapter 5. I don't know if that, and this wouldn't be the first point. It may come up at the same time. Yes, look at this. What does the Holy Spirit do? He bears spiritual fruit in us. In fact, I'll just use the verses on the screen. Look at that. What does the Holy Spirit do? How does he witness to my spirit? It's spiritual. Check your life with the Bible, not what Jeff says. Check your life with the Bible. Another idea of fruit is evidence, the byproduct, the proof of the Spirit being in your life. Are these things part of your life? Look at that list. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. The evidence, the proof, the byproduct of him coming in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love for God, love for brothers and sisters in Christ, love for lost souls. I just put kind of three groups. Love for the Word of God, love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It is joy. You say, but I may not be happy. I'm not talking about happy. There's joy, deep-rooted joy. We're going to talk about the reasons why later. Peace. Patience. When the Holy Spirit comes in someone's life, they have patient endurance. Please get this. They continue I'm going to go ahead and tell you, Christians continue. Somebody swings in, comes to the church for a few weeks, maybe even a couple of months. Next thing you know, you can't find them. It's not because they went to another church. They're just kind of off the grid. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking kind of what I would say. Hey, Jeff, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I get it. I understand. But are you telling me they're having their time with the Lord at home? Are they having their time in, in the Word and in prayer and with the Lord at home and they just choose not to be with God's people? Is that what's happening? Patient endurance, difficult things hit. Christians keep on going. Someone who doesn't do that kind of makes you wonder, and I can't say for sure, but man, does it seem like you really are a Christian? Does it seem like you're really saved? Something stopped you. We don't stop. We don't quit. We continue. Keep looking. Hey, whatever you're doing, I want you to stop doing. I want you to look at the one, two, three, fifth one. You see it? The fruit of the Spirit in a person's life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. When the Spirit's in somebody's life, you know what? They're kind. Everybody in the building, everybody in here, stop and check yourself. What is kindness? You say, yeah, we're not mean to people. Is it more than that? They say, well, yeah, okay. Well, listen. Are you mean to people? 
That's not a good sign. This is actually the positive side of that. Are you kind to people? You're like, yeah, I'm kind to my coworkers. I'm kind to unsaved people. Can we start right here? Are you kind to your brothers and sisters in Christ? If you're not like kind, not just, okay, I won't be mean anymore. Okay. Oh, I'll stop being mean. The question is, are you kind to your brothers and sisters? You ought to be. That's the spirit work. If you are, by the way, you should be saying, wow, I'm not going to brag on myself, but something in me right now is saying, yeah, not perfect, got a long way to go, but that's where I'm at. I don't have time to hit all of those. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There's no law. What does the Spirit do? He gives us spiritual fruit. Secondly, He causes us to be killing our sin. We already covered this. I'm going to touch it quickly. Verse 13. Not on your screen, but verse 13, if you have your Bible open. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, which means a sinful, fleshly, the lowest part of our nature. If you live that kind of life, you will die. But watch the end of verse 13. If by the Spirit, notice, by the Spirit, you put to death. We're not playing games here. This is rough language. You put to death the deeds of the body, then you'll live. You know what you kill? You kill what you don't like. You kill what you despise, unless you guys are out deer hunting. I know that's the exception. You're like, oh, I, don't, I hate deers. I just like, you know, want something to eat or like having fun, whatever it may be. Sin in your life, the Holy Spirit helps you to despise that sin. You say, but a part of me loves that sin. But the Holy Spirit in a believer never lets you get comfortable. Never lets you get all cozy with sin. I don't know about you guys. I still sin. But when I do, he starts thumping in my heart, in my soul, in my spirit. It's just, I'm not allowed to be that way. I have to get it right. Third thought there is he gives us power for service. All that means is, I don't know what happened all of a sudden... I got saved, and it maybe took months and perhaps even years, but God is using me. He's like he's doing things in me that I never would have done on my own. And then the fourth one, we could put a dozen. But the dead giveaway is, is there's this inner voice. I told you it's spiritual. Is there an inner voice that tells you, you're the child of God. You can talk to, you can talk to God. You can call God your father. Not everybody can. You can. If you guys, I'm not saying, sometimes I struggle to concentrate, but I'm telling you, many times, and if I just linger long enough and focus on the Father, the Holy Spirit starts helping me pray. And I realize, God, I don't understand it, but you told me to come boldly through the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm coming to you boldly. I'm allowed to talk to you, and not everyone is. And I'm even moving right past the holy angels who are living in heaven. I outrank them in the whole scheme of things because you said I do, not because I'm special. And the Holy Spirit says, that's exactly right. He's your Father. Talk to Him. MacArthur writes the following about verse 16. Check yourself. It's a lengthy quote. Listen carefully. When believers are compelled by love for God, deep hatred for sin, reject the world. It means the world system that hates God. Listen to this list. When believers long for Christ's return, love other Christians, experience... Answered prayer. When that starts happening in your life, he says, when Christians discern between truth and error, if I get up here and preach error, I hope there's enough spirit-filled Christians can recognize that doesn't sound right. We should always be able to back it up with the Word. Holy Spirit helps us discern truth from error. He says, when Christians long for and move toward Christ's likeness, The work of the Holy Spirit is evidenced and those believers have witnessed that they truly are the children of God. And I'm going to make some pretty bold claims right here. You need to hang on. They're simple, real simple. I believe with all my heart based off verse 16 and other passages like it. You ready? A true Christian should know he's a child of God. A true Christian, verse 16 says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's what the Bible says. A true Christian should know he's a... Listen, I'm Charles Bartlett's son. That is a reality. That is a fact. I personally have never doubted that, not one second. And I know some, you may be like, I kind of wonder if I... Okay, that's in the physical realm. I'm just telling you, if you saw his 12-year-old picture and my 12-year-old picture, you'd say, yeah, that's, that's, that, that's that guy's kid. And if you saw my brother, you'd be like, oh yeah, they're brother. Yeah, they came from the same parents. I'm Charles Bartlett's son. I don't doubt that. It's undeniable. I've never wondered. Listen carefully. 
before you even write a note, I want you to hear this first. The Bible's position, the Bible's teaching, the Bible doctrine, the Bible stance is that many, many people will be shocked they don't get to heaven. Many are going to be shocked. I mean in a second, less than a second. They're not in heaven and they will be in hell and they will begin screaming in torments immediately and they're going to be surprised. It's going to happen. You say, "Uh uh-uh, get out of here. That's, That's not going to happen. Read Matthew 7. Jesus says, in that day, not a few, many shall cry to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name? We were preachers. And we ran around and did many wonderful works. And we even cast out devils and demons. We did all this stuff. And you're, what in the world happened? Jesus is going to turn to them and say, depart from me. And you're going to say, wow, the poor things, they lost their salvation. No, listen to what he says. Depart from me, I never knew you. You were never saved. The Bible stands. I'm just not trying to be a mean preacher and I'm not up here trying to get a shock you know, effect on you this morning. I'm telling you what the Bible's position is. Many people will be shocked. They didn't get to heaven and they did go to hell. But nobody should be shocked. They do get to heaven. No one's going to be shocked. Me? I made it? If you're sitting here this morning, I wrote this thought this morning, very simple. If as you sit there right now, your belief is this. By the way, this is somebody here today. This is your belief. You're going to go to heaven, where are you going to go? I asked a young man this just the other day on a Wednesday night. I said, where are you going to go? Not if, but when you leave this world and you die, where are you going to go? He said, well, based off how I've been living lately, I'm probably going to hell. I said, uh, say his name. I said, let me just clarify one thing for you. I said, I can drop one word. I said, you are on your way to hell. If you think you're probably on your way to hell, you are on your way to hell. You say, why is that? Because faith in Jesus Christ is something a person knows they're doing and it has a starting point and it continues and continues and continues. That's the Bible stance. The normal status of a Christian is to have assurance. So you're saying, Jeff, are you telling me Christians never doubt? No, hang with me. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it is not normal for Christians to doubt. Have you ever doubted, Jeff? Yes, watch this. From the age of 9 to the age of 12. I got saved when I was 9. My official 99.9% of the time, I was just certain. But every now and then, I pretty well knew I was going, but I would have just a hint. It's a cloud of doubt. That was not my default stance, but that every now and then I'd hear strong preaching on like Matthew 7 and, and hell, and I'd be like, oh, is this really real? And, 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 but then something happened when I turned 12. I read a particular verse, Titus chapter 1, verse number 2. Realized what it said, God who cannot lie. This is what the Bible says you have to do to be saved, which is absolutely nothing because Jesus did it all on the cross. Put your faith and trust in Jesus, Him only. Holy Spirit helped me realize that. And to God's credit and glory, I can tell you, honestly... I haven't doubted a second since. You say, man, I wish I could get there. The normal state for a Christian is assurance. For a Christian to go around doubting their salvation, and I'm describing some folks in this room, I understand that. Something's wrong. That's not normal. You say, what could it possibly be? Let me throw four things at you very quickly. Number one, maybe you've never heard it explained exactly what eternal life means. Can I just say, we'll we'll hit this multiple times in Romans 8. We already hit a little bit. If you can lose it in a few months or in a few years, you had few months, few years life. You didn't have eternal life. Does that make sense? Maybe somebody, in fact, it's not only you've not heard about eternal life. Unfortunately, you sat under some teaching or read a book and someone flat out told you you can lose your salvation. And that really confused you. You really have put your faith and trust in Christ. But here, this person, you look at them as an authority. They go off script from scripture and they start saying you can lose your salvation. It really messes you up for a while until finally you get rooted in the ground. You realize, wait a minute, eternal is eternal. And wait a minute, I didn't save myself. Kind of another thought along that same line is some folks struggle once they even hear about eternal life. And this is somebody here this morning. You struggle to believe that it's permanent. So you kind of got a theology issue that needs settled. But I'm going to tell you probably the number one thing that I find of a person who has really put their faith and trust in Christ and Jesus that causes them to doubt. And here's what I found most of the time. They don't take the garbage out. And they live in sin and allow sin to build up, 
They may be say 1 John 1, 9, but they don't really access 1 John 1, 9, which says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in other words, when I sin, it is not, Lord, would you please forgive me? It's, Lord, you're right. I did that and I thought that. and I didn't do that. You're right. God, by your grace, help me not do that again. I'm sorry. Thank you for forgiving me of that. There's a difference between, would you please? I'm waiting to see if he's going to... No. Thank you, God. Not assuming and presuming, but just by faith. Lord, thank you. Help me to be stronger in that area. I'm going to tell you, when you let sin build up, you forfeit your assurance. So, Jeff, you said there was four things. Yeah, here's the fourth one. A lot of people doubt their salvation because they're not saved. And they ought to doubt. That's the main reason, probably. If you say, yeah, I'm kind of 50-50 and really... I had to give a real percentage. I'm kind of 49 that I am on my way to heaven and 51 that I'm not. Uh, I'm not the final judge, but boy, based off what I've read of Scripture, I'd tell you, yeah, you're not 49. You're 100% lost. You need to get saved. But the Spirit assures Christians. And I hope you understand this. That's not for the elite diamond status Christians. Well, I hope to make diamond status one day and get that assurance. This is normal. That's normal. You're the child of God. Yes, you sinned. Get it right. Ask the Lord for strength. Acknowledge it. Confess it. Receive his forgiveness. Now get up. Keep putting yourself back under the word of God. Number seven this morning. Comes out of verse 17 and 18. What does the Spirit do? The seventh thing we've looked at is the Spirit guarantees our inheritance. The Spirit guarantees our inheritance. Verse number 17 So he tells us we really are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Heirs of God. So Christians, well, I really, I don't, this is a great passage and I'm going to just not do it right. I hope the Holy Spirit will just take some thoughts or maybe what you read there on the page or see on the screen and drive home to you so that you walk out of here with a whole different confidence and awareness and excitement about what God has done for you. You have a guaranteed inheritance, the Holy Spirit, the one who says you can talk to God as Abba Father, the one who promises you really are a Christian. He tells the real Christian, spirit to spirit, yes, you're a child of God. He also lets us know that we have this inheritance waiting and it's real not picking on you ladies but you are probably a little more susceptible to what I'm about to say go hate me if you ever catch yourself watching TV and watching the Royals and I don't mean Kansas City Royals okay not talking about sport if you're watching the Royals from the other side of the Atlantic over there and you're watching that or maybe you're watching one of these Hollywood glamour couples and glamour families if you listen if you're watching that and you just see all the pomp and the splendor and all the pageantry and look they just they just everybody loves them and it's a big deal it's kind of like they're Hollywood's couple or their Hollywood family if you look at that and think I'd like to be part of that don't don't say why If you're a Christian, that is such a huge step down from what you already have. Would you go with me? It'll be on the screen. But if you've got a Bible, look at 1 John chapter 3. Look over there. Maybe put yourself a little marker. Maybe somebody needs to be reminded of this today. Look what John says. John's the last remaining disciple. He's probably in his 80s at this point, pushing 90, maybe already in in his 90s. He's the last one. I, I, I really, as much as the truth of what it's saying, I want you to get the tone of what he says. First John chapter 3. Christian, this is for you. Look what he says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. I want you to see. If John were here today, his voice all quivering and low and his back bent over, he'd say, do y'all see what kind of love the Father has given to us? What kind of love is, is it? He says, we, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Say, yeah, but it doesn't seem to be anything unique or special. Nobody can't even tell who is and who isn't. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Here, the very Son of God, God Himself, walked among mankind. They couldn't even figure out who He was. 
Beloved, we, listen, Christian, hear this, taste it. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You know what John's saying? Think, look, see how much love. Now here's our problem. You're about like me. And sometimes we think thoughts like this to God. Lord, you know what would be nice? Everyone else, come on, you know you're guilty as I am. You know what would be nice? It would be nice to be like Bill Gates' heir. And I understand he's got some kids. I don't know how many he has. And apparently he doesn't give them as much as you'd think. It's a lot. But it's only a few million. It's not like, hey, here's a billion for you and a billion for you and a billion for you. He only gives them a few million. Apparently they're in the will, but most of his stuff has gone to charity. But every one of us, would, we, we probably, here's how we think. I'd love to be Bill Gates' only heir and get the whole thing. And then just wait on him to die. It's kind of, yeah. Here's what we think to God. I'm telling you. Somebody in here, here's our thoughts. It's almost like we tell God, God... If you really love me, will you give me a new house? Lord, if you really love me, give me a new car. Can I pick the make and the model and the kind of the accessory package and the color? Lord, if you really love me, I want, I want a mountain cottage. I want a condo at the beach. If you really love me. And some of you are hearing that and going, yeah, I used to think that thought. And here's where you're at. Listen, God, if you really love me, give me good health. Give me good health again. If you really love me. You know what God says in 1 John 3? You know what he'd say to that? Whoa, 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 whoa. Do you know what this says? What, Lord? You're my child. Okay, yeah, yeah. So since I'm your child. No, 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 no. You're my child. You will live with me forever. Everything I own, you own. Oh, okay, great. That, that's great, Lord. But no, 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 don't, don't just blow that off. Christian, you have a valuable inheritance. It cannot be lost. You say, why is it valuable? It's valuable because of the worth of God. Our inheritance is valuable. Why? Because of the worth of God. How valuable, how valuable is God's worth? What is God's net worth, by the way? Uh, let me sum it up. One word. Everything. Everything. To be more specific, everything that God possesses, you are an heir. Literally, what verse 17 is saying is, Jesus doesn't receive his inheritance, but that Jeff Bartlett gets the equal inheritance. And now you're saying, I know he's lost it now. He's put himself on a line with the Lord Jesus Christ. No, I haven't. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, did. And children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs, joint heirs, co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. So what in the world does... God possess, if we possess all that he possesses, here's our inheritance, eternal life. God possesses eternal life. By the way, that's not a length of life, that's a kind of life. Don't have time to go into it. God possesses glory. Christian, you will have glory. And that's not for you to feel puffed up. I'm just telling you what's coming. God has glory, you possess that because you are his child. You will be an heir of all of that. You will have, you say, so I become like God himself. You are brought into God, but you don't become God. Literally, you are placed at the right hand of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he have? God has holiness. Christian, this should encourage you. You inherit holiness. Now, you're not there yet. I'm so glad through eternity I'm not going to struggle with sin. I'm going to be so glad of that. It's one of the best things. So what does God own and possess? The universe. Literally, last night I go out and I look at the stars and went and checked the mail because I got... The time I checked before, I just want to make sure. And I look up, and there's mostly some clouds, but I see some stars, and it's just like, yeah, I own that, and I own that. And we own the new Jerusalem that's coming. But the greatest thing that we possess and will inherit, wish that time, chew on it. We inherit God Himself. God is our greatest inheritance. All those things are great, but I promise when you see God, you're going to say, this is wonderful, but I'll give all that up if I can have this. Wow! I'd spend eternity with God. Look at this. That's what I've inherited, and you can't lose it. 
And so you hear that, and here's what we think. Well, then, man, let's check out right now. Let's go get this inheritance. This sounds wonderful. What are we waiting on? Uh, what we're waiting on is verse 17, the second part. Okay? If you would, look to verse 30. Romans 8, verse 30. If I could get technical just for a moment. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, those whom he predestined, he also called. So again, y'all have heard my story in 1979. He called me. The reason that happened is because I was predestined. I know I've, I've run into people and they get kind of mad when preachers dare to even read these verses that are in Scripture. But I want you to look. That's not our thought this morning. It's not the main one. Look at verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Here's the key for today. Those whom he called, he also justified. He called me in June of 1979. I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because he extended his grace. I received it and in that moment God justified me. And then Paul says those whom he justified he also glorified. Watch this. Here's what happens. When a person gets justified, insert your time. Do you have a time where you started putting your faith in Jesus? If you pull this by the way I've been a Christian pretty much all my life. That's a scary statement. No one's born a Christian. For me, I was nine years old. God justified, which means I declare you righteous, not, not because Jeff is righteous, but because he's accepted the righteousness of my son. Now over here, we're going to put glorification. So that's justification. Here's glorification. Paul says anyone who has been justified will be glorified, but in the meantime, there's this thing called they need to be sanctified. Sanctification, where they're made more and more like Christ. Now here's the part we don't like. Sanctification, tucked in between these two, involves suffering. It does involve suffering. So would you write this down? If you have, Yeah, we see it already. Two thoughts out of verse 17 and 18. And that's the certainty of suffering. Yes, we have this inheritance, but in the meantime, there's a certainty, certainty of suffering. I spoke with uh, someone on the phone about this verse this week, uh, Sarah, sailors, we were talking. And I said, I kind of struggled with that. So y'all work with me. Look at that. Uh, actually, look at verse 17 in, in, in the Bible. You know what he says? Provided that we suffer with him and then we'll receive the glory. The glory will be, will be revealed to us. Provided we suffer. So that's what we can expect. So I asked myself, what is this suffering? And I kind of wrestled with it a little bit and I reached my own conclusion. And then I checked a couple of other writers to kind of see where they were at. And sure enough, it kind of fell out into two different groups. Here's group number one. They read verse 17, they hit verse 18 and keep right on going where we'll be next week. And they say, oh, it's very clear in the context of the scripture. This is the suffering of the whole planet. The whole earth groans. There's this curse on creation. And we're under that curse and we have aches and pains and we have loss and sorrow and we're frustrated. And there's futility and there's weakness and there's marital trouble and there's financial stress and that's what we're all going to go through until it's time to receive the glory and we just know that's just going to be part of life. Is that the suffering? Because suffering is certain. Or is it this? Someone else may say, no, 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 no. It's suffering specifically tied to being a Christian. They suffer with Christ. Jesus said the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. So in other words, this suffering is because I'm a Christ. In fact, almost more that I am a Christian, the more love I have for the Lord and the more sanctified and separated my life is, all of a sudden I'm going to receive scorn and ridicule and ostracization. I should not have even tried to say that word. Alienation. And everybody at the plant is getting a promotion, and I'm not. And I know full well why I'm not. It's because I'm a Christian. And by the way, we're an American. You say, Jeff, it's kind of not that way here in the U.S. Trust me, around the world today, some people are being physically, physically beat up, persecuted, thrown in prison. As I'm standing here free, and as you sit there free today, we'll go get something to eat after this, and we'll shake hands and hug necks. But somewhere in this world, our brothers and sisters are in a dark box in total isolation, only because they put their faith and trust in Christ. And others will die today. They will die today. It's like, is that the suffering? Is that what's coming? 
So Jeff, what do you think? Is it, is this, is it this one that we're just all saved and unsaved people? They, we get diseases and we have loss and we go to that funeral and we love them and, and our pet dies. And it, this is real stuff. This really does hurt. And, and is that what it is or is this, these things specifically because we're Christians? The only thing I could conclude is yes, I think it is all of that. You've got to have the suffering before the glory. Christ does not assure us of health. Yeah, I know that, Jeff. Do we? I'm always amazed at how sometimes we just assume God owes me health. God does not promise us wealth. By the way, okay. Watch out for preachers who most like all of their messages give the whole tone if you ain't having health and wealth, something wrong, because that's how God always wants it for you in this life. They're very selective on their passages of Scripture, or they're just apostates. I don't care how much they smile, I don't care how much they blink, I don't care about how many books they have on the front, you know, down there at Books A Million, and how many millions of copies it sells. If you get sucked into that, here's what I know, J- Jesus promises us, you say, he doesn't assure health and wealth, no, he assures us there'll be suffering. It's coming. There will be suffering. It may. In fact, I'll go stronger. It will be. You will have frustration. You will have sickness. You will have loss. You will have pain and death. And you may have ridicule, scorn, loss of promotion. You may even be killed for the cause of Christ. Oswald Sanders wrote the following about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know them as the three young men in the Old Testament. There's this big idol... The Chaldean king says, now listen everybody, when the trumpet blows and the horns blow, everybody bows down to the image. Trumpets, horn blow, everybody bows down except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're like, no, we know that's idolatry. We're not doing it. We serve Jehovah God, not doing it. Well, here they come. Whoa, 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 whoa. Them, get them. Hang on. Now apparently you boys didn't hear the notice. So listen, we're going to do it again. When the horns blow and the trumpets blow, bow down, everything will be good. We'll let this one slide, all right? They're still not. Bottom line, y'all know the story. They got thrown in. Somebody needs this quote. Sanders says, Deliverance from trial is not necessarily our highest good. It's not on the screen yet. It'll be there in a moment. Hear it first. Because that's how we think. This is how we think. But he's right. Deliverance from trial is not necessarily our highest good. God did not deliver the three men from the fiery furnace. But he did deliver them in the fiery furnace. And I wouldn't put this quote on there if it wasn't something to take home and meditate on. He says, we must get away from the idea that deliverance from trial is the highest form of spiritual blessing. And I'm like you guys. I'm telling you straight up. When I'm struggling, I love to know that God came through and even to be able to give a testimony. God fixed it. God came through. We were able to pay it. We were able to do that. I didn't have to do that. And we love that. But I'm going to tell you, that is not automatically the highest form of spiritual blessing. And we in America think it is. So there's the certainty of suffering. And then second this morning is verse 18. There's the satisfaction amid suffering. Satisfaction amid suffering. I'm not going to develop these. I'm going to throw a string of text on the screen to use for effect. They're on your handout. You can take them home and study them. I want to find one first. Ready? Here comes. Matthew 6.33. Look at it on the screen. Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. You know what he means? First and foremost, that's your focus. Just focus on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Lord, I want your righteousness. All these other things will be added. He'll take care of that. And I don't even know that he's putting himself on the hook. He's got to do it in this life. That's not, not, not guaranteed. He says, all the Gentiles seek about what am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? Where are we going to live? He said, don't you worry about that. You seek first the kingdom and his righteousness about the kingdom. Along with that, watch 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. Real short verse. For you were bought with a price. Christian, I insert the word Christian. So, 
Listen, glorify God in your body. Say, Jeff, we already know this. We say we do. Glorify God. Glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 31. Watch this one. So, whether you eat or drink. Hey, Paul, is it right to eat meat that's been offered to, to idols? Is it right or is it wrong? Is it right to drink this? Some people say it's wrong to drink that. Others say it's okay. Which is it? You know Paul's conclusion? Oh, I'm educated. I know what the Bible says. Who cares what they think? I'm going to do my own thing because I know what the Scripture says. I am the strong Christian. They're actually the weak Christian. Paul says, whether you eat or drink, here's what's implied, or not, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So not for myself. I'm not going to say, I know this is okay. I don't care what everybody, I'm doing this and they can just deal with it because I want to, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Sounds a lot like Romans 8. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. What God wants, He makes happen. Verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. His glory. So we just read those verses. Live, seek first the kingdom. Glorify God in your body. It's about the Lord. Whether you eat or drink whatsoever, do the glory of God. Here verse number 12 says it's about His glory, His praise. Colossians chapter 1. Look at this one. For by Him all things were created. Okay, He's the creator. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Some things you see, some you don't. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Hey, listen people, you're a made thing. You were made for the Lord Jesus Christ. You're made for Him, not for you, for Him. And the last one is right there, two verses after that. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in everything he might be preeminent. So if you want to study, go back and study the reformers in the 1500s. Go back and study the Puritans. Go study guys like Jonathan Edwards. You say, I've heard of him. Go look some, some of his teaching up. You know what they teach? God made you for his glory. It's never about your comfort. It's not about your pleasure, Christian. Study these verses. Him, him, him. Don't worry about yourself. Live this life for his glory. This is not a quote, but you see the name Piper on your handout. John Piper says that we're supposed to magnify God. We're supposed to glorify God. He heavily influenced by Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans and the Reformers. And they take these verses very literally. And it's very different than the modern, typical sermon in the United States. God's glory, God's glory, everything, live for Him. So grace for you, listen. Live for Jesus, live for God, His glory. And so Piper takes this word, and he may have been influenced by C.S. Lewis, I believe it was. You say, what is this glorify God? Here it is, magnify God. Does your life magnify God? They say, oh, magnify God, kind of like a microscope, right? Kind of make God look bigger. Listen. Piper says, not like a microscope, like a telescope. A microscope takes that which is small and makes it appear large. A telescope takes that which is huge and unimaginably great but distant and makes it appear real and relevant and close and beautiful. Christian, you are called to glorify by magnifying God like a telescope. Why? Because we live in a world where there is evidence of God, but unfortunately, today's modern sinful man thinks, well, if there is a God, he's way over there. Our job is to make him appear close and beautiful. So, good, got it. I'm in. Sound like a great thing. Let's pray and go home. I'm hungry. It's about me. Piper, again, not a quote. He says, the purpose of your life is to help others see this seemingly distant God as real and more beautiful than all else. How do we do that? That happens when we treasure Jesus. Treasure Jesus. We'll hold off on the rest of the note. I I wish I would have had them come up one at a time. You say, treasure Jesus. Okay, great. Do you treasure Jesus? Do you value him more than anything else? 
You'll see them on the screen in a moment. Listen. A lost world will realize we have a great God when we treasure Him more than our health. Well, hold on the screen, but if you want to write that word, more than our health. If literally, guys, I'm going to ask you this morning. This is tough. As again, it's going to come my day. My day's coming. But if God were to say, Jeff, got a deal for you. I'm going to be glorified in your life. People are going to realize I am great because they're going to see you valuing and treasuring me even more than your health. Now, here's the thing. You're going to lose your health. Would I say, sign me up, Lord? Or would I say, Lord, anything but my health? And by the way, we really show Jesus as a treasure when we value him even above our wealth. And you can really tell that one pretty easy. Because if you never give anything away and all your whole mentality is accumulate, accumulate, build up, build up, build up. Jesus isn't a treasure in your life and you're not showing him great and beautiful to anyone. Our home, our reputation. Do you realize how many people have lost their home? I'm not going to give you any figures, but there's a ton of us in here. If we could have back every dollar we've ever given to the cause of the Lord, whether it be through a local church or missions or some special need... Our houses would be paid off and it'd be a lot different house than the one we're sitting in. A lot of you are just like me. What you give to the Lord is more than you give to your mortgage. What if we could like double or time and a half our mortgage? Man, we could really be, we could live over here and it'd be great. And if you're sitting there saying, that is kind of, I've never thought of it that way. Honey, we need to get a lot better. It's just a house. It's just a house. Matthew 13. I'm only going to look at the first verse here. Look at this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Treasure. A man found. So he finds his treasure. And the idea here is a lot. And he covers it up. Then in joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Look at that verse and just keep it real simple. Watch. Here's a comparison. Here's a treasure. Here's all he has. And he makes a choice. I'll give up all I have for this treasure. The kingdom of heaven is where Jesus is the treasure. And most people don't recognize him. But I realize that. And I know it's coming and it's real and there's this inheritance and there's suffering in the meantime. But that's okay. I'll go through this present time suffering for the eternal glory that's to come. I love you even more than this. So I'll give up all that I have, Lord, if you want it. All that I have, I'll put that aside to have you. And when we start living crazy like that, people start realizing there's something about those people. Only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last I'm very quickly going to throw two passages of scripture can we look at Acts 16 look at this I'm sorry Acts 9 15 and 16 Acts 9 15 and 16 Paul's just been saved his name's Saul actually and there's a man named Ananias and the Lord's telling Ananias Ananias go over to Saul he's on the street called Straight he's in the city of Damascus he's already had a vision that you're coming so I want you to go and Ananias starts saying Lord wait a minute that's this Saul fellow that's been killing Christians. I'm a Christian. He's out to kill people. Like uh, He has authority to come up here to Damascus. And God says, no, no, no. Look, the Lord said to Ananias, go. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I, catch verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Go to him, let him know he's on the right track, and he's special, and I'm going to let Saul, who's going to become Paul, who authors the book of Romans, I'm going to let him know in advance some things that are coming, some of the suffering he's going to endure. Now watch 2 Corinthians 11. Look at this. Paul has to, and he's embarrassed by it, even calls himself a madman. He's embarrassed to have to do this. But he has to compare himself with some false teachers who've come behind him and try to undermine his ministry. And he gives us a quick synopsis of some of the sufferings. This is just a list. Watch. Comparison. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. He hates to brag, but he's having to do this because his church that he started is wanting to follow the false teachers. And so he's having to just tell, oh, they're claiming to be Jews and Israelites and Hebrews? I am. Are they, they're going around telling you they're servants of God? I am better one. I'm talking like a madman. Why am I doing this? Why are y'all making me do this? He says, with far greater labors. I work a lot harder than they do. Far more imprisonments. Plural. Far more imprisonments. Have they been in prison for the cause of Christ? With countless beatings. Often near death. 
Five times, Paul says, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. The Old Testament allowed a beating on a person to be 40 lashes. And so the Jews would strip the back and take a whip and beat someone 40 times. But in case we don't want to break the law, they would only do 39. Paul says, I've had that five times put on my back because I believe in Jesus. Three times, I was beaten with rods, Gentiles. Once I was stoned. They literally left him for dead with not little rocks, stones, unconscious Concussion. Left for days dead in the city of Lystra. Three times I was shipwrecked. In fact, he gives account of one of those. A night and a day I was adrift at seas, floating on something. And I'm telling you, if that happens one time with me, I'm not going back out there. I mean it. If, I'm ever, if I ever go on a cruise and that sucker goes down and I'm floating on something a night and a day, you don't get me. Oh no, I've got a free cruise. Forget it. You go. He says, on frequent journeys... Really, those are the false? Those are the ones that you're following? He says, I'm telling you my life. Frequent journeys in dangers from rivers. Well, don't go near the ri- rivers then. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Well, then go to the Gentiles. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Well, then get out of the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger. Guys, look at verse 27. In hunger and thirst. Often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure of me, on me of my anxiety for the churches. You know what Paul's saying? Paul, you've lived a hard life. And when you put those two together, here's one thing that becomes crystal clear. God showed Paul in advance many of the sufferings. Paul, Saul, yes, Lord, here's what's going to happen you're going to have beatings. You're going to have shipwrecks. They're going to beat you. They're going to beat you. Robbers are going to try to get you. I mean, you're going to be in danger all the time. There's going to be days you have nothing to eat or drink. You're not going to have a place to sleep. You're going to have cold nights. You're going to have many sleepless nights. If we had one sleepless night, we'd remember it. This is all the time for Paul. My point is this. He knew in advance going into it. I'll promise you this today. If we could interview Paul right now, and he had to come back to earth and live the whole thing again, Paul, he's going to make you go live it again. But he said there's a quick clause. You get to change some things. What do you want to change? I'm telling you. Where he is now, Paul would look back and say, I don't want to change a thing. He's like, surely he would change this list. Paul knew at the start what was coming and he embraced it. It's almost as though he welcomes it. Bring it on. But you're going to have this and this and this. Wonderful. Why? Could it be, as we go back to Romans 8 and finish... Verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He got a snapshot, a sneak peek. He's there now. If he had to come and live his life again, which he won't, Paul would say, don't change a thing. In fact, Lord, if you need to lay it on a little thicker, lay it on a little thicker, I know what's coming. More suffering apparently leads to more glory. Could it be? Could it be? The more suffering the more glory. I've used this before. The year was 1803. Napoleon Bonaparte finally made a deal with Thomas Jefferson and the Congress of the United States. We will sell you the Louisiana Purchase. A lot of people thought Jefferson was crazy. Why? Because Jefferson said we need to give them, and I've heard conflicting reports, but I think somewhere around $11,225,000 for what? Who remembers? Who knows their history? The what purchase? Louisiana. Let that sink in. Here we are. We're just a 27-year-old country. We're struggling. You know how much $11 million is? You know, Tom, come on, man. We can't afford it. No, we need to. They're going to sell us the city of, of, of what is it down there in Louisiana? What's that? Big? Uh, yeah, New Orleans. We need New Orleans. We've got to have a tie into the Mississippi River. And finally, the deal was not, not just New Orleans. We're going to sell you 828,000 square miles. I didn't say acres. 828,000 square miles. $13.55 a mile. St. Louis is like 66 square miles. St. Louis, the city of St. Louis, 66 square miles was bought for $894. My point is, it's $11 million, man. It's a lot of money. Come on, dude. I'll buy right now. I'll buy St. Louis $894. I promise you, I'll take it. I'll buy Houston. 
give me Kansas City, throw in Denver. Are you kidding? Doubles the size of the United States. We got our money back many times over. Some of you here this morning, I'm not bragging on you, I'm, I'm calm, I'm closing, listen, I'm closing. Just keeping it real, your faith has cost you. Can we start with the least? You could have slept in today, a lot of people did, but you're here. Some of you have come to a fork in the road and you chose the path because of your faith, a lot less travel. Everybody else went over there. And maybe by yourself or those you were with, we want to do this? Let's do it. Let's take that one. It's going to be hard, yeah? And you meet with loss and sacrifice and pain, but it's for the cause of Christ. Some have done radical things, missions, starting up things, crazy. You've lost your mind. That's some of you. Some of you, when it's all said and done, you will have, listen, thousands of hours of study to teach lessons and you don't get a dime from grace of you. Every week you spend two, three, four hours. Every week. And someone else, they get paid, but you're just in the Word and it's a sacrifice and you know that Friday night or, or, or Wednesday morning early and maybe you piece it along or you're just up late Saturday night, whatever it may be. Why? You're just studying these and when it's all said and done, you will have given thousands of hours you can never get back. Some of you, many in the room, When it's all said and done, you will have spent thousands of hours in your own time praying, reading the Bible. Your neighbor works at the same place you do. And every now and then, about every month, he has a morning. He doesn't sleep so well. But every time he's up, your light's on. And finally, he can't stand it. Like, dude, we work the same shift, same place. Why is your light always on? That's that's just when God and I meet. Every day? Every day. And he thinks, man, that God must be something. Because he could be sleeping. And what do you do every Sunday morning? You guys got, yeah. And how come you don't have a boat like mine? Well, don't worry about it. I just like to do something a little different with my money. Guys, I'm looking at a group of people. I'm not trying to brag. I'm just keeping it real. When it's all said and done, there's many of you. When it's all said and done, you will have given hundreds of thousands of dollars to the cause of Christ. There are people in this room right now, when it's all said and done, they will have given a million, two million dollars. A million, two million. Think about it. If they could have it all back and have been investing it all along, they're at a point right now. They could go on a Viking river cruise every month until they die. If they could have it all back. But if he's who he says he is, you haven't lost anything. I'll promise you when you get there, you'll be glad. But I gave those hours of that and those hours to that and that money. You're going to be glad, I'll promise you. Paul says, the struggle, the suffering, it's an opportunity to show your faith. Just keep loving Jesus. He's more valuable than anything. I'll take Him. And it makes people thirsty. I want what they've got. I'm going to go down there to that church. And then they hear the gospel and they get saved and they end up having this, what we had this morning. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Two types of questions. Here's the first one. Real simple and straightforward. I need everybody to answer. Answer in your heart. Does the Spirit give you assurance? Check your heart right now. I hope every, every person that is a Christian, I hope you can honestly in your heart say, and I'm not bragging on me, Jeff, we could have a private conversation. And when you were talking about all those things the Spirit does in a person, I know Verse 16 is true. He tells me I'm a Christian. Verse 15 is true. He tells me I'm allowed to call God my Father. He kind of prompts me to pray that way. He leads me like verse 14 says, Jeff, by God's grace, I know for a fact I am being led, I am being prompted to pray to my Father because the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I really am a child of God. Listen, I'm going to ask you. No one looking around. And don't play games. You say, I know that for a fact. Not bragging, but I know that for a fact. Would you raise your hand? Raise your hand doesn't make you. You could lie. But if that's a fact, would you raise your hand? You say, I know that to be true. The Holy Spirit bears witness with my spirit. I know I'm a child of God. Thank you. You can take them down. What if you're here this morning? I'm just wondering, is anybody here this morning? And this is the fact. You say, Jeff, 
couldn't raise my hand right then. Because verse 16, 15, 14 are not true in my life. In fact, I know this Holy Spirit, He does not tell me in my spirit that I'm a child of God. I do not have the assurance that we sang about earlier. Is there anyone like that this morning? You'd raise your hand. You'd say, Jeff, I'm going to raise my hand. I know I don't have the assurance of the Spirit. Would you raise your hand, anyone? Giving you an opportunity. Hold it up just for a moment. All right, Christian. If you're a Christian, you're a child of the King. You're an heir. And so I want to encourage you. Value Christ above everything. Paul says it's not even worth comparing. It isn't, there is no comparison. Yes, the Christian life involves suffering and it's difficult and there's sacrifice and hardship and loss. And we go through all the same things that an unsaved person goes through and eventually we will die. But in the meantime, I'm going to embrace, by God's grace, I'm going to embrace the suffering. Even that part which comes because I'm a Christian and the giving up and I'm going to follow the Lord's prompting. Here's my question. I'm going to have two things. Please don't, don't raise your hand unless you can be honest. Is there anyone here this morning say, Brother Jeff, I have been so blessed and I really need God to give me more of an eternal perspective on my blessings. Do you get what I'm saying? Some of you have already seen that. You get it. You got it years ago and you've been living there. I know I'm supposed to sacrifice. I'm embracing. If Paul had it to do over, he wouldn't change a thing. Bring it on. I welcome it. Apparently, verse 18 saying, more suffering is going to be more glory there. Jeff, I am blessed. I'm in just a good place. But I need to be more aware of my blessing. I need an eternal perspective. Is there anybody like that? You raise your hand. You say, I, I just need God to give me. Thank you. I see, I see several. Is that anybody? Say, God, I, just give me a, an eternal perspective. I don't want to live a wasted life. And here's my last question. Is there a Christian in the house that would say, Jeff, right now I'm in a test, and it's the test of my life. But I want you to pray that God will give me an eternal perspective and the strength to embrace it and see it as an opportunity to make him look good. I see a hand already. Anybody? I'm in a tough spot going through something. Would you raise your hand? Father, as we stand and sing to you, I pray that we'll get what you've told us. Lord, thank you. You let us be called your children. Lord, thank you. We can never lose our inheritance. Can't lose it. Thank you for the word of God that is always sure. Lord, we're going to walk out of here and we're going to be smacked in the face with the world. And we like it. Lord, we love comfort. and We love pleasure. And we love money and the things that money can buy. And so, Lord, Lord, I pray that no one will walk out of here thinking that Jeff preached against wealth and health. Lord, those are blessings. Thank you for those blessings. Lord, I have relatively good health today. I want to say thank you for today. And Lord, most all of us, compared to any part of this world, we are all wealthy. We are blessed. So thank you for that, Lord. We, we do not just cast that off as an evil thing. But Lord, would you help us not love it more than you? And Lord, help us to use those things as opportunities to further your kingdom. Lord, for the one that is in a trial, a struggle, their faith has been stretched thin. God, would you let them go home and remember Paul's inspired words. The struggle and the suffering cannot compare. Yeah, $11 million is a lot. But it doesn't compare to 828,000 square miles. Thank you that that is a drop in the bucket to our spiritual inheritance. Let us sing the victory today. Would you stand with me? Sing with our team.